Many of them had known me in the context of spraying champagne, you know, over the crowd from the DJ booth. And now I'm embedded with humanitarian surgeons and doctors in a country they've never even heard of. That, my friends, is Scott Harrison. Scott Harrison is the founder of Charity Water. Uh, his story is just a fascinating story. He went from uh, like a super fundamentalist growing up, and then he became a nightclub promoter in New York City. And then he has this crazy story where there's like a uh, his life is threatened, runs away, um, ends up on a hospital ship off the coast of Liberia sees the effects of uh, like the water crisis firsthand, and then he comes back to New York on a mission uh, to raise money for water around the world. I think he's raised like some $100 million um, since, I guess it was mid-2007-ish. Mid and so anyway, you're going to love this podcast. One of the things I try to do here on the podcast is help you navigate faith in the modern world. And one of the things about faith in the modern world is you have to deal with a lot of really hopeless situations. And like, for example, my daughter walking in while I'm recording this at my house and talking to her mom about practice tonight. But uh, more than that, uh, hopeless situations of just th things are just really bleak sometimes. Sometimes it feels like what the writer of Ecclesiastes describes is like it is all like meaningless, like a vapor. Like you try to do one thing and then a million problems come out as you try to solve one problem. But w one of the things I love about uh, what he does is he helps gives us a way to navigate faith in a world that sometimes seems hopeless. But if you you give in to hopelessness you got nothing right like it takes everything away from you i think one of the greatest temptations we all deal with is cynicism bitterness and entitlement and when you let one of those three things into your heart it will uh run rampant and take the joy that god has for you and the calling god has for you and the life that god has for you all the way and so if you let cynicism bitterness and entitlement get in there uh you're done Anyway, so uh, Scott Harrison helping us navigate faith in the modern world by talking um, about his work with Charity Water and how to not be hopeless. Um, let me tell you one of the things I want to do on the podcast. We've got a bunch of great guests lined up over the next uh, month or two that I'm super excited uh, for y'all to hear from. Uh, some people you've heard before, some are going to be new to the podcast, but um, I'm also wanting to do uh, some mailbag stuff. We haven't done one of those in a while, and I always enjoy uh, getting the questions and hearing what you guys want to hear about. And I've got uh, I got someone new that I'm going to, they haven't even agreed to this, but I'm going to get someone new to help me uh, on the mailbag. So we we might do it a little different. I might do them at the end of some of the interviews, or I might do an entire mailbag podcast. Nevertheless, uh, the format might change, but uh, your questions are just as encouraged. So if you want to send those in, Luke at LukeNorsworthy.com, or just go to Insta. Hit me up on Instagram. Send me a message there. That's probably the best way to do it. And... Um, We'll get those out to you. Again, Luke at Luke Norris with his email. More importantly, go to Instagram. Hit me up on that. And uh, without further ado, here's our guy. Uh, oh, I was supposed to tell you, uh, this is the uh, three-year anniversary of my first book coming out, which is pretty crazy. Uh, God of Rude came out three years ago, and it has been uh, a joy to share that with you. Those of you who have been longtime listeners on the podcast, you hear a lot of stories, a lot of things that were going on behind the scenes uh, in the podcast, some of the questions that you know, oh, that's where Luke is coming from, was in that book, God Over Good, and it came out three years ago. And it seems like it was just yesterday, but it was not just yesterday. It was like... 
1300 yesterday's ago that it came out and it's just been an honor to share that with y'all and to hear the uh the connection it has with you so uh check out the book if you don't have a copy of it it is a book in which i try to make sense of faith and deal with a lot of the questions that i have about trying to understand who god is and what that means to be a person of faith in the world in which it's not always easy to find god and so if you connect to that um the book might give you something uh to help you anyway without further ado here is our guy scott harrison All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have joining us from Nashville, Tennessee, Mr. Scott Harrison. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Good to see you. It is good to see you as well. One thing you and I have in common is uh, we both were born in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. One of my go-to lines. When did you leave? I left when I was 12. Okay. I bounced around to to kind of the suburbs and then South Jersey. I was actually born in Center City. My parents lived in Society Hill Towers. But then uh, okay. they, they got out pretty quick for the burbs. They, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we uh, 12 years in the area and uh, I like to go with the uh, in West Philadelphia. I was born and raised on the playgrounds where I spent most of my days. It's one of my favorite intros. As I've aged, the reference doesn't work as well anymore. Have you ever tried that? No. Have you ever tried? Because I feel like I can't be the only one. It doesn't. No, I mean, listen, I, I've been in New York City for 26 years, so they say once you hit 10 years in New York, that's your identity uh, wow. for, for a long time. So I would probably associate a lot more with uh, with Manhattan. Yeah, that makes sense. But you are now in Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> as of uh, yeah, two and a half weeks ago, we just moved to the South as a family to uh, to try it out. What is the uh, the biggest culture shock of going from New York to the South? People are ridiculously nice and and you would just look at someone in New York City like they're crazy and they must want something sinister from you to be yes. that nice. Do you find yourself feeling the need that you need to be nicer to people if you're going to acculturate absolutely. well? Absolutely. There was a, yes, yes. I'm not even going to give examples, but uh, I, I got a little frustrated and uh, with, with a situation, kind of a paperwork situation. Mm-hmm. And I think somebody thought I was yelling. I'm like, oh my gosh, not a single New Yorker would call this yelling. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just, you know, I, I think people just don't get frustrated in the South. You know, everybody yep. just walks around smiling and blessing each other. So I, yes, mm-hmm. I, I think I have to uh, maybe soften some of the edges. <laughs> My, this, I might get in trouble for this, but my wife, who married me from Philadelphia, that's where I was born, um, anytime someone is rude, she says, oh, they must be from the north. From the north, yeah. But, yeah. but it's or not they, rude she, she said, the north. We actually they, don't think we're rude. We're just no. impatient, and we expect excellence at every turn, and you know, you're, yeah. you're going through your, your life uh, surrounded by skyscrapers and noise, and... Yeah, you know, you want the Uber to pick you up on the northeast corner of the block, and you get used to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there's a Philip Yancey wrote a line uh, in his most recent book about how in the South they sugarcoat everything, their tea and their truth. Mm. And so I don't think it, it. It sounded better when he said it, but the idea that like you sugar because for up up in the north, if you're just direct with someone, that is a way of like respecting them because you don't have to kind of wade through all like the niceties. You can get directly to what's actually going on. But not also, everyone sees way it that more way. efficient. It's just more efficient communication. So yep. yeah, I, 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 it's definitely a new style. You know, there's mm-hmm. 
There's there's 20 minutes of uh, of nice and niceties and pleasantries and anyway I, I love it it's been it's been great but I <laughs> I think I definitely you know I'm also my entire outfit is like everything I own is black or gray so mm. you know I, I don't I, I I don't see anybody else like head to toe in black walking around you know 85 degree you know, summers in Franklin, uh, but you got to like, like uniform. E- that's just all that's I own. East, like that's East Nashville though, isn't it? Well, I'm is not that, in East Nashville. I'm, I know you got to go I'm visit in, there. I'm in I the guess. suburbs. I'm in Franklin. <laughs> it's a little different. Uh, yeah. Well, you're saying that to a guy who wears a black shirt every day as, as well. Um, so I like, I appreciate the hustle you're doing. Stick with it. Don't let Franklin turn you into like a polo shirt wearing <laughs> Listen, guy. I heard or something. this term the other day. Cause we, we, we moved out of New York city after 26 years to uh, a farm in Pennsylvania. So really rural life. And then now Franklin, and someone said, oh, you're doing the COVID shuffle. Like that, <laughs> COVID shuffle. <laughs> yep. That sounds about right. That sounds about right. But like, there are a lot of people who've escaped the city during uh, COVID. And um, yeah, no, that, that all adds Almost up. Almost everyone that we were in community or relationship with in New York City has gone somewhere else. And, you know, my wife was, was grieving and lamenting the loss of of New York the other day. And one of her friends said, Victoria, you are grieving a place that no longer exists. Hmm. So we, you know, we had that realization, even if we moved back into our two bedroom apartment, you know, even if our, we put our kids back in the same schools, all their friends are gone. All it's our friends, same. you know, are gone. So yeah. it's, a, it's actually, you know, it's, it's a bit sad for the city to be honest. Well, yeah. I mean, New York is kind of a staple city of there's a, there's a whole new it, it's gonna, spate of 20 year olds that will come uh yeah. you know looking to make it rich and famous no I, I got i was talking to someone who uh moved there recently and they said oh it's magical so you left someone else came in it's magical to them they're ready to go exactly. forward they're gonna go buy a like a camcorder that they think is a camcorder but turns out it's just a piece of rock in a uh oh, box just oh, like you, you. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh someone got a book yep. reference in already mm-hmm. um okay let's talk about a sad thing uh that uh i'm just gonna like rip the band-aid off because in your story you talk about having uh a mom whose illness was a prolonged i assume it would be classified as a chronic illness uh yep. because of uh carbon monoxide leak in your house mm-hmm. was yep. there for a long yep. time good memory um my mom, uh, when I lived in Philadelphia, was bit by a tick and had Lyme disease. Lyme, yeah. So the the situation you described from even I think you're like a teenager, maybe sixteen, and you you played a uh, like a, a radio directed towards her room, thinking that her illness was all in her head, uh, mm-hmm. which turned out to be not the case. Um, to that was like your experience to, with Lyme. Well, it, there was an experience where I didn't understand uh, an illness that mm-hmm. was um, like hard for me to conceptualize. And yep. it, sadly, it was of all places, I heard Joe Rogan talking to a former UFC fighter uh, about their spouses or, or their own struggle with Lyme's disease. And it was like really revelatory for me, like of all places to go to Joe Rogan for medical advice, you're typically in trouble if that's what you're doing. But nevertheless, like having to hear it from an outside perspective yeah. was... I don't know, something I needed. And anyway, so you, you grew up in that, uh, that world, uh, the like r- removing clothes to remove scents, r- like outside yep. contaminants from that. Like I, I, I understand that um, from my own experience, a little bit different, but it's, it's, I can relate to it. Uh, as you've like processed life growing up uh, with a chronically ill mom who um, uh, 
like when when you think of your childhood how much of it did you realize this is different from everyone else and how much of it did you just go well this is just normal for my life so it has to be just normal for everyone else I think both those things can be true. You know, I realized my mom was not like the other moms. She wasn't a soccer mom. She wasn't driving me around. She wasn't at my games, you know, baseball yep. or soccer. Or, um, she was disabled. And I would do the cooking and the cleaning, and, and I, would, I would help her you know, kind of manage through life. Um, but then also, it's all, it's all I knew. And there was a sense of responsibility. I was needed. Uh, I was an only child. And maybe uh, a lot of confidence that was instilled, you know, through that position of growing up early, uh, being yeah. needed, and being able to do a lot of things. Yeah. There's a fascinating book that uh, I had a therapist recommend. It was called uh, Adult Children of uh, Alcoholic Parents. And I was like, my, my parents were teetotalers. Like, this is not, this mm-hmm. is not, like, I don't relate to it at all. But then he said that when you have a parent whose illness becomes the thing that everyone else kind of bases their existence around, it functions similar to the chaos that's created by addiction. Now, obviously, it's not a fair comparison, but, like, the, the book made a lot of sense that you just have to normalize something that's really, like, chaotic for, for, mm-hmm. like, for your entire life. And I don't think I realize or have spent much time thinking about the impact of that, you know, I'm I'm typically not a person who lives much in the present, uh, or certainly not the past. You know, it's always thinking about five years ahead, ten years ahead. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, I started doing some counseling work recently. So these are some of the the issues that have been that have been brought up. And I remember when I when I wrote the book, which was a two year process, and I was working with someone. Her view after interviewing my mom, who was alive at the time, and my dad, and and some friends, was like. Oh my gosh, you had a deeply traumatic childhood. And I remember that was such a foreign idea to me. I'm like, what do you mean? I was fine. Uh, That's all I knew. You know, we did, we all did our best. And so it's just, it was so interesting when someone else got into my life story, you know, in, in, in such a granular way, her reaction was so different than how how I believed I had experienced it. Yeah. Do, Do you talk about the Enneagram? Are you an Enneagram uh, person? I do. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an eight uh, with a seven wing, but I really just want to be a seven. And uh, yeah. every, every opportunity I can, you know, I'm, I'm trying to live like a seven and not an eight. Yeah. Well, I, I sense a lot. I'm, I'm a seven. And so I was just thinking, like, there's a lot of that similar living in the future stuff, kind of minimizing vulnerability or minimizing pain and or normalizing. Pain. Like, who wants to talk about what's the use of that? <laughs> yeah, it's That's ridiculous. In the past. Like, we got through that. It didn't kill us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I, <laughs> yeah. So let's not talk about that anymore. We'll move past it. Um, but uh, yeah. So that's the first thing I was reading your book. I was like, oh yeah, I, uh, I appreciate you writing it down. I appreciate you articulating your experience um, because I know I'm not the only one who has had something like that. Um, so your your parents were like deeply religious, and mm-hmm. you uh, <clears throat> like it. it I guess you're 16, 17, you decided you're going to leave the private school. You're going to go to a public school. You were kind of pushing your own direction. And then when you say private Luke, this was school in the basement of an assemblies of God church. There were nine of us in the freshman year of high school. That's pretty private. We all wore (laughs) uniforms and they couldn't afford teachers. So they brought in video cassettes in black and white. Okay. So let's just, 
you know, lest anybody think this was a place of privilege. This was like hell in the basement. Okay. With video just, science. So it's an yes, exclusive. I did say I will run away if I have to continue suffering that. And you had what you had your uh, change of clothes hidden underneath a sink. So uh, as soon as the, the uniform the, the, was, yeah. Oh, so ugly, dark gray, like the, the, the shirts that we had to wear, the collared shirts were literally the color of urine. It was, it was mm. like the ugliest yellow I'd ever seen. Mm. Yeah. I, I, just a rule of life. I try not to wear urine color or anything, but uh, you know, to each, to I mean, each their own. I don't know many. I don't know many people who look really good in like urine yellow. You know, so uh, if yeah, it's anybody's I've, for favorite cover color, and I've, I've we're uh, not judging you. you. I'm sorry. No, whatever. Whatever. Not is judging your thing. yellow lovers. Yeah, you, but urine lovers. That's a different subject. Um, I'm also okay. like a white pasty guy. Like you know, that also doesn't work on yellow. No, I like I, I I feel that I feel that a lot. So uh, you said at twenty eight you were living the worst version of yourself. So there's like this decade of um, you know less than traditional Christian values were being lived out. But you end up going to like a Christmas Eve service with your dad and uh, and and your mom. And I, I'm thinking to myself like I have had this interaction where I have like a parent who comes to me and say, Hey pastor, um, I- I've got this kid. L- like, would you like do something or say something? Uh, will you like, like be the person who like fixes it? And I'm just sort of like, I-, I don't know if your parent made you have that exact conversation, but if you did, like w- what in the world could someone even say in that moment that would like be somewhat life giving to you? Yeah, absolutely nothing. <laughs> That's um, what I Yeah, absolutely nothing. Uh, you know, I was, at that point, I was, you know, deep into drugs, uh, alcohol, gambling, pornography. I smoked two packs of Marlboro Reds for 10 years. Uh, you know, I, I can't think of anything either winsome or antagonistic that, that would have worked at that moment, uh, if I'm honest. You mean one thirty-minute sermon yeah, wouldn't, is, uh, wouldn't you know, fix all that? Probably not a lot of hope for. Uh, no, I no. Mean, I honestly. was a full-on prodigal. You know, I had to come to the end. I had to. I had to find myself in the in the proverbial pigsty. You know, on my own. To you, nobody else could have could have told me that on the way. Yeah. No. I and I think the while the effort is understandable and commendable, um, it is deeply fraught with problems because it's not going to work and. Somehow, I, I, I mean, a 12-step program teaches, like, you have to come to the end of your rope for you to ever want to change. Patience and relationships. And my parents did a great job at not ever ostracizing me. Um, they certainly were unhappy with the behavior, and, and they had no problem telling me that. But they, you know, they stayed in relationship with me, and they prayed. And then they got lots of other people to pray. Yeah. And then they got those people to get lots of other people to pray. <laughs> so there were circles and chains and, uh Yeah. Uh, a lot of people trying well, well, to that's one of the things that, pray pray the sin out of the prodigal. Well, that's I mean that's one of the things I saw in the story is that you, you know you you have this decade of uh, decade of debauchery just goes really well together alliteratively. Yeah, but you, you continue Decadence. to call your dec- oh, that sounds even better. Um, but you're still calling your parents every couple of weeks, and I think that's a sign of you know no, no parent is perfect, but the fact that you keep that relationship open or they kept it open, like that's a sign of probably what you want to do it is. in that situation. Yeah. They did a great job with that. Yeah. I'm assuming they probably didn't like the fact that you were sending postcards. Now, for those who don't know, like you were a nightclub promoter. And so you're sending out these uh, promotional pieces that have um, women who are not fully clothed and uh, you, you send them to your mom, which is, that's some kind of move right there. 
mean, she was on the mailing list. You know, I wasn't like intentionally sending mom pictures of, you know, scantily clad women. She was just on the list. She just got it all. She put it all in a scrapbook, by the way. So I eventually got delivered, you know, the uh, archive of my 10 years of going rogue and, and you know, my sinful scrapbook, basically. <laughs> <laughs> sinful scrapbook. Oh, that's so good. That's the alliteration so good. is strong, uh, Luke. Yeah, you're, I mean, I'm just following your lead at this point. Um, but here's the thing you didn't say, though. What if you got a bodyguard or a bouncer fired and then they ended up showing up your door with a gun uh, as an ex-convict who's not afraid to go back to jail and they're going to try to kill you maybe that's something you could recommend if someone says hey how can i get my son to yeah, turn the yeah, corner get your life threatened get your life threatened yeah like, so I've, you know i had this i had this crazy moment and you know it's interesting we we we'd gotten our lives threatened all the time in nightclubs because your job is keeping people out the you know the the whole system runs on scarcity the the mystery yep. behind the velvet rope but yeah towards the end of this decade you know i'd been reading tozer's pursuit of god i'd been kind of fed up with my own life and really disillusioned disenchanted and and then there was this event where guys like yeah i'm going to kill you for firing me and and that was uh that was the 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 impetus needed to you know maybe finally separate from 10 years in 40 different nightclubs yeah, I, I feel like death threats are highly underrated when it comes to life transformation. <laughs> it's something I'm... Yeah, and a lot of people OD. You know, that, that's, the, that's the rock bottom. That, and a lot of people OD and die. So I know, I know doorman in the, in the space who, you know, they thought they were doing coke and they did heroin instead. And, you know, they're in the back of an ambulance and they don't even make it to the hospital. So, you know, I, I, I felt very fortunate to have gotten out of that lifestyle unscathed, um, healthy, surprisingly yep. and you know and then be able to obviously make a clean break and, and walk a hundred percent away from from all that stuff yeah that's beautiful and uh i'm, I'm so glad to get it because obviously your work uh right now is it's like so life-giving to so many people and uh so the story is that happens you find yourself uh with uh mercy mercy ship which is literally yep. a, a floating hospital and uh west africa is that where you were yeah liberia Okay. Right after the war ended. Yep. Yeah, that's um Yeah, so there's a lot going on right there. And so your first day, um I think the cancer patient, or excuse me, the, the, there's a a kid who's I think 14 had a tumor growing on the side of his face that was pretty substantial and uh they were told that you they couldn't do anything because it was malignant, not a benign tumor. And yeah. you talk about just like breaking down when you see that. And you have like this this doctor, I think his name is Gary, is that right? Dr. Gary? Dr. Gary Parker, yep. And like he's this very like impressive character as you describe him, and in that moment he comes over and gives you the pep talk, which says to focus on the hope. Yeah. In, in the midst of like this like unseen like uh, for many of us like an unseen type of tragedy that that obviously does exist. How did how could you focus on hope in the midst of like all that suffering and all that pain? Yeah, I think it's a choice, and. You know, we had, so we, I was with this group of doctors post-war Liberia, 14 years of civil war is the backdrop. No electricity, yeah. no running water, no sewage, no mail system. One doctor for every 50,000 citizens in the country. So people were sick and we advertised the coming of our doctors. The government gave us a football stadium, a soccer stadium, uh, where we could triage the people who would come. And I knew we had 1,500 available surgery slots and 5,000 people came. So you do the math. 
3,500 people go home without help, 1,500 people get helped. And, you know, you've got a, you've got a choice. Do you focus on those 1,500 people and fighting for more resources, more money to help, you know, 1,501, 1,502? Or do you throw your hands up and say, you know, what's the point? There's just too many sick people. So I've always been an optimist, you know, again, through my mom's illness, I watch her persevere and fight for her health and, and fight for her, her dignity and, and any semblance of normalcy that she could, she could find. Um, so I've, I've always defaulted to, Hey, let's just, let's just get to work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Gary had the line, uh, actions, not words. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's get to it. Yeah. So you, you find yourself in the situation, you're telling the story, uh, as a, <coughs> what was your title? Like you're a, a journalist functionally, but you were yeah, a photojournalist. Like, I mean, I was yeah. taking pictures and writing stories. Yeah. And so obviously your personality is one that is conducive for not getting overwhelmed in a situation like that. Um, but just to, to find like, Hey, there's something we can do. We can move forward. I assume that like not everyone had that ability to naturally just like, all right, we're just going to focus on hope. We're not going to get overwhelmed. Do you think other, did you see others around who had it like a, a more arduous time to have that level of positivity? You know, it's a great question, Luke. I think most people, they did their job. They were medical professionals. You know, many of them had worked in emergency rooms. Uh, this wasn't their first, you know, this wasn't a lot of people's yep. first rodeo. So they showed up and they just managed through tough stuff. Um, I think the, the organization at its core attracted people who were, you know, wide open realists and who, who knew what they were getting into and wanted to, to make a, make progress, wanted to move forward, wanted to help. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, a lot of tears. So I remember a lot of people just weeping and it was just a lot of, you know, emotional sadness at the desperation at the trauma but i don't i mean there were a couple of people who went home who just couldn't handle it but that that wasn't that was a, that was the fringe yeah it, it seems like it would kind of self-select the right kind of person to do that and like you said if they're healthcare professionals uh my wife's a neonatal icu nurse and so the stuff that she sees on uh you know daily basis is far different than what i see i mean the, the norm is you know yeah my baby was dying last night died three times we brought it back like that's not a normal part of yeah. my life right. and so life i guess you're right like, yeah yeah that's uh, that's there um you <laughs> what you did next so you're, you're there for a while and you're heading back to new york where you're living at the time or where you were living and you decide that you want to do something to tell the story and part of what you'd done over that time is you had this long list of uh e- email list or mailing list that came yep. from your your club promoting days yep. and you were sending out these stories and so s- some people were like overwhelmed just want to jump in and get on board others were like hey scott grossed stop out. sending yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> what what are the conversations like with someone who got grossed out like what are they saying hey i just don't want to be aware of the the pain that's going on in the world or they're just gonna just say unsubscribe. oh this is subscribe unsubscribe yeah. i didn't sign up for this list you know i signed up for the prada party list or the you know the guy who was throwing fashion parties not you know the guy sending me pictures of leprosy from africa <laughs> it, D- different content, different list. Seems like it's a different brand, just a little, just a little different, different brand. Yeah, but but really, most people, Luke, as I as I write about, were just they were intrigued. I mean, many of them had known me in the context of spraying champagne, you know, over the crowd from the DJ booth, and now I'm embedded with humanitarian surgeons and doctors in a country they've never even heard of, sending pictures. So there was there was a little bit of a vicarious 
maybe even voyeurism at first that just kept some people reading. Um, like a voyeurism of like, this is me if I like gave up this, this. Well, I did get a lot of those emails saying, wow, this seems so amazing. Like, what if I wish I could find a way to to give or, you know, to do something meaningful. You know, I like I work at Chanel and I sell cosmetics or, you know, and, and again, nothing wrong with anybody that works at Chanel. But there was just a sense of, you know, wouldn't it be cool to be a doctor? Wouldn't it be cool to go out and work with doctors uh, to help people, you know, to in, in extreme life and death situations? And so there's just a lot of people who wanted to, to financially help or to support in other ways what, what you're doing. How, I think we all do things for a plethora of reasons. And to say that like there's one simple motivator for any behavior I think is a little bit reductionistic of the human experience. I think we're a mixed bag that we have good things and also bad things uh, that motivate like our behavior. Mm. I feel like there's a lot of good in people that they want to do something. But I know there's also just some guilt for what people have. And like to give a gift to someone in the developing world, doesn't isn't there part of that where it's just like, hey, I want to get rid of this guilt for what I have, and so if I do this, then I don't feel so bad. Yeah, I think some people certainly give um, to assuage guilt. Um, I think people give for a lot of different reasons, Luke. I mean, I've seen some of the most radically generous people. Um, who don't have the resources that you might expect, you know, as, as they've given so generously. And then I've seen, you know, plenty of billionaires that, that I've gotten to spend time with that, that, that maybe one would wonder, you know, why more resources, why, why they're not getting excited about more resources going to, you know, to improve lives or uh, across any spectrum of, of causes. So, um, I, I don't really spend much time on that. I mean, I'm so focused on trying to bring clean and safe drinking water to, to everybody on the planet. You know, we've, we've, we've only raised $600 million. That's a fraction of what's needed. You know, we've only helped 13 million people out of 770 million people. So I kind of need everybody to think yeah. this is a good idea. And I need everybody to get on board with the giving and the generosity. And some people, you know, I've seen become transformed through their giving. Um, other people, you know, give for, for different reasons. Yeah. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm just trying to take all of those resources and turn it into the most basic need for humans. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm a little more pragmatic maybe, you know, I heard mother, <laughs> Ther- believe me, I'm no mother Teresa, but I heard that like she would take mob money. Like she just did not care. You know, she had this saying like the blood of Jesus will wash it all clean. Like just (laughs) if anybody was willing to give her money, I mean, it it sounds like they could be the, they could be criminals. I mean, it could, it could literally be blood money, but she was using it to help people in Calcutta because she was so focused on her, on her mission. So yeah, I'm, I'm not out there really sussing out the intentions of our supporters. I'm just trying to tell the story in a hopeful, positive, aspirational way and invite everybody into the, the the community yeah that's great you said you've seen people uh through their generosity be transformed can you explain more about how you've seen people transform through yeah, their generosity they'll make their first gift to us and then the next thing i know a couple years later they're supporting 20 20 organizations you know sometimes just getting them over the hump of or you know, many people are cynical and skeptical about giving about charities you know 70 percent of americans recently polled uh said they 
they believe charities waste their money. So yeah, seven out of 10 people think a charity is going to do the wrong thing with their donation. Um, so we, you know, we've really tried through the hundred percent model and through proof and technology to kind of restore that faith, um, through these, you know, these, these proof loops and, and just, you know, transparency. But, um, I have found, you know, people, I mean, I know some people, you know, there was, there was a, a family, they gave a million dollars to us. They wound up giving $20 million to us over the years, but then they launched, uh, a charity that they also put millions into that's now raised like $50 million, you know, so their, their philanthropic impact now is, you know, it's over a hundred million dollars. And, you know, we were just the first gift. Um, were we responsible for all that? Uh, no, but I've been encouraging them all the way, you know, yeah. Hey, this is great. Get involved in that. Can I help, you know, can I help vet something for you? You know, this is, this is awesome to see them, them lean into it. So, Skepticism of the legitimacy of organizations, that's one of the biggest detractors for people supporting philanthropic work? Well, and I think just maybe the non-effectiveness of some organizations. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, having um, subpar brands, having subpar, um, you know, excellence maybe across programs. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I've been to 70 countries now. I've seen some exceptional work, and I've seen some pretty poor work. Um, and, and I think that's true in, in any in any business or any sector. You know, you've got people who are who are out there really uh, efficiently, effectively delivering product, and you have other people who are not. Yeah, that makes sense. One of the things that your model that you mentioned has created is this this group. I think it's called uh, the Well that covers basically yeah. all the overhead, and so that enables a donor to like be giving directly towards mm -hmm. w what's happening. Why do you think people don't like, I get so hung up because obviously in the church world, there's a similar, um, uh, negativity towards paying for, you know, the light bill and paying for health insurance for employees. W what do you think it is about that? That makes people feel like, Hey, I want nothing to do with that. I don't, I think it's just the not knowing where their money goes. M most organizations oh, okay. just, are, are, are completely opaque. Um, I would argue the church is one of the most opaque, you know, organization, you know, set of organizations. I mean, you, you can't, you know, we have to publish the 990. You can see all the top executive salaries. You can see, you know, how we spent every single dollar. You know, we published 15 years of audit reports on the, on the website. Um, you know, that class of organization just doesn't have to do that. So I think people, are open to myriad value propositions. Most donors, most supporters, they want to help. They want to be useful. You know, if I said right now on the podcast that our greatest need was to fix a broken copier and we needed $850, I'm sure your listeners would come up with $850 to meet that need. Now, that's not a very attractive need, right? That's, an, that's the most overheady thing as possible, but if people thought they could serve charity water or move the mission of clean water forward by fixing a copier, um, people would do that. So I think the the challenge that we were trying to address with these two bank accounts that are separately audited um, and the 129 families who pay for the overhead that then allows a million donors globally now to to give in a pure way, we were just trying to say to people, you know exactly what you get, you know where your money goes. For a million people, your money's going directly to 29 countries to help people get clean water for those 129 families all of your money is going to overhead and staff salaries and flights and phone bills and insurance and those are different value propositions and, and different kinds of people 
you know, who could get excited about one or the other. And some people give to both. Hmm. So y- your comment was, if there was this need, we put it out there, people would step up and do that. People, y- you sound like in terms of your attitude towards humanity, you're more positive than cynical of people. It sounds yeah. like. Yeah. I mean, I think people are, people want to do good. They know that they've been blessed. They look around and see all of the suffering, uh, some of the needless suffering. And I think people are just paralyzed often. You know, you're almost, you're overcome with a paralysis of like, what do I do? You know, could my money ever make a difference? You know, could I really do anything about the global water crisis? You know, Mm -hmm. could I do anything about, um, hung, you know, world hunger? Or, or, you know, right? So it's, it's up to organizations like ours to say, yeah, if you have $40, we will take one person from dirty water to clean water. If you've got $12,000, we could take an entire village from drinking dirty water to clean water. Um, you know, if you've got X amount of money, you know, for the overhead side, we can hire one talented software engineer, you know, to go and help take the mission forward. So it's, it's up to us to kind of, almost break it down and, and encourage people to reject that apathy or reject the paralysis and, and add their voice, add their time, add their talent, add their money. Mm-hmm. Like that's very encouraging to me. Like, cause you, you've seen a lot of like the worst part of the world uh, where, you know, from, you know, drugs to seeing some of the ways that civil war has destroyed, you know, parts of our world. Uh, but you're so hopeful and, and optimistic. And uh, that's, like, that's pretty encouraging to me. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I believe the best is yet to come. And, uh, you know, we've, we've done a fraction of, of what needs to be done. You know, Charity Water's now given 156th of the people who need clean water, clean water, like 1.8%. So that's not mm-hmm. a very big dent. But this year, we'll get 2 million new people clean water, mm-hmm. uh, which is more than we did in our first five or six years. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's kind of about staying the course and showing up and staying true to your values and uh, leading with hope and optimism and then just inviting people to, to join, to be a part of the movement. Yeah. Okay, let me ask you one question uh, before you get out of here. Uh, your organization is set up as a non-religious NGO. Yep. Uh, t- tell me more about, like, the rationale. Is it because you probably assume if you say you're <laughs> Christian that most people want to ju- jump in and be a part of it? Well, I joked that at the beginning, I didn't even know any Christians. So, like, I, I probably couldn't have even in New York City started a religious organization. Um, no, it was really intentional. The, um, it, it's a big tent that, that we've been intentionally trying to, to build. We want everyone. This problem is so massive. A tenth of the world mm-hmm. is drinking dirty water right now. Um, I don't just mm-hmm. want people who do what I do on a Sunday, you know, or, or pray to the God that I, like, I want everybody. Um, who everybody can care about clean water. So we, you know, the beauty of building charity water is we have, you know, deeply conservative uh, Republicans. We have wildly progressive liberals. We have independents and libertarians. We have huge Christian communities, Mormon communities, Jewish communities, Muslim communities. You know, Muslim school kids once sent $65,000 in from Dubai, um, having come across charity water online and and did a fundraiser like that is that is kind of the the organization we're trying to build and again you know it's an inarguable common good clean drinking water for humans 
You know, and it, it aligns with my theology. In the kingdom of God, nobody's walking for dirty water. Nobody's dying of diarrhea. No woman is getting, you know, raped or attacked by a lion at a, at a water hole, you know, in, in, in Malawi. So uh, I get to live out my theology through my work, but I get to do it with no strings and invite everybody to be a part of something good. Yeah, well, I love the work you're doing, and I love your optimism. So, uh, Scott, thank you so much for the time. And uh, We'll do round two another time. <laughs> yeah, let's make that happen for sure. 